The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, you may have noticed that Chris and I are virtual twins today in our, in our attire, but I can assure you that I don't play the piano like that. So let's pray that I could preach as well as he plays. Let's give attention to God's word. This is Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray again. Lord, we ask that for all of us here that you would open up our eyes our ears, give us spiritual ears and spiritual eyes to see, to hear, to see what Christ has done for us, why this was necessary, to see how good you are to us. We thank you for Christ, our champion, the one who has won the victory for us. We pray that we would see that today more and more and that we would rest in that and that we would resist the devil and that he would flee from us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you know, children and adults, the devil's real. And he's on all the pages of Scripture, except for the very first two chapters and the very last two chapters. And the last book, Revelation, the curtains pull back and we are seeing cosmic battles. <clears throat> And at the beginning, even in paradise, in the Garden of Eden itself, you have a devil. And let me tell you, we're not in the Garden of Eden anymore. We got evicted, and we can't get back in until someone pays our rent. And thankfully, Jesus did that. And one of the great joys of heaven will be that someday there will be no temptation, no devil, no tempter. But in this life, as, as Martin Luther, the German monk and leader of the Protestant Reformation said, for where God built a church, there the devil would also build a chapel. And whenever something as good is happening spiritually, expect the devil to show up 
And usually temptations are really subtle, as we shall see. But sometimes they're really strong. I remember some years ago when I went to get an, I was interested in getting a new cell phone because everybody else was getting the latest and greatest, and mine worked fine. But, you know, mine was fine until I saw what other people had. And I went to the Verizon dealer and began to explore my options. And they let me know that I could get a new phone as long as I would say something was wrong with my phone. And so they got out a little sheet of paper and they said, we, we got we to write something down. You know, and I said, well, my phone works fine. They said, I know, but we have to write something down. So, you know, it's just, you know, it's dropping lots of calls or something, you know. And, the, and I just said, I can't lie. You know, my phone actually works fine, you know. So here, here is the dealership trying to, you know, please just come and tell us what's wrong with your phone. It had been a good chance to witness, but I, did, I blew it. Um, here before you, we have three temptations that are from the devil himself and three answers to the temptations. And Je- Jesus is going to use the only weapon that has been given to him and given to us. It's the sword of the Spirit. If you notice, each of Jesus' temptations, he responds with, it is written. And these temptations, we encounter a mystery, don't we? Satan tempts, and yet God tests God tests us to refine us, to purify us, to prove that we really do love him. And yet Satan will use that very same test. And a lot of times in the, in the Greek, it's the same word. It can be translated either way, test or tempt. Satan used test as temptation. And he wants to bring out the worst in us. He wants to get us to doubt God's love, to sever our trust from him, to keep us from vital communion with him. And I can't solve the mystery for you as to how these things work out. But Adam and Eve were tested early on, weren't they? Very early on in their spiritual journey. And no sooner than Israel crossed the Red Sea that the people of God entered into a period of 40 years of testing, temptation in the wilderness, which we'll come back to because Jesus is immediately sent into the wilderness to redo and, and undo what it, where Israel failed He's the Israel of one who's going to prevail for us. And here Jesus is doing the redo. And he's tempted for 40 days after fasting here in the wilderness. I want you to see this as a contest. This is round one of the great cosmic contest of the powers of the universe. Last week, uh, Ben preached about how Jesus was baptized and he's filled with the Spirit at his baptism, and immediately he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I used to really struggle with that verse. Do you ever just scratch your head like, you're filled with the Spirit and immediately you're led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted? Like, I used to just have a hard time with that. And I, as I see it now more as, as a entering into a battle. You see, Jesus has come as the king. He's bringing in the kingdom. Well, he's got to drive out the old king. And he's got to bring the new dominion in. He's got to get rid of the old. And the old is the devil. And so think of this more like scene two in Rocky two, or scene in Rocky two where Adrian has the baby. And Rocky says to Adrian, hey, listen, if you don't want me to mess with Creed anymore, I'll find something else to do. And Adrian says, I want you to do one thing for me. And the answer was, when? 
And instantly Mick says, well, what are we waiting for? And the music starts and dum da da dum da da dum Well, that's what we have here is as soon as the spirit fills him, what are we waiting for? Let's get to the battle. Let's get to the contest. This is a cosmic struggle. And Jesus has come to do battle. That's why he's come. And so Philip Yancey puts it like this in, in The Jesus I Never Knew. Like single combat warriors, two giants of the cosmos, conversed on a, on a scene of desolation. One just beginning his mission in enemy territory, arrived in a badly weakened state. The other, confident on the home turf, seized the initiative. So in light of this cosmic battle, Jesus is representing us. He's winning our salvation for us, similar to how David represented all of Israel's army when he faced Goliath and defeated Goliath. Sinclair Ferguson pastor, scholar, says this. He says, we should be careful not to reduce redemptive historical events to illustrations on our own spiritual journey for the tempting of the Christian. Now, we'll make some applications of how this plays out for us, but he says, Christ was tempted as we are, but resisted. Therefore, his experiences and his temptations constitute an epical event. They're not merely personal, but they're cosmic. They constitute the tempting of the last Adam. In the power of the Spirit, Jesus advanced as a divine warrior, the God of battles who fights on behalf of his people and their salvation. His triumph demonstrated that the kingdom of God is near and that the messianic conflict had begun. So let's not forget the main point as we go through this, that Jesus is accomplishing our salvation for us. And he has to be perfect in every way. He's tempted and tried in every way. He feels all of our temptation, and yet he never sinned. And so Jesus, in accomplishing our salvation for us, he didn't just parachute in on Good Friday and land on a cross. He's 33 years of winning our salvation and both his, what theologians refer to as his passive obedience, his death on the cross, but his active obedience, his whole life of being perfect to the law of God. Ben talked about that last week. Well, Hebrews tells us that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so Jesus is God and yet he's a man. And as a man, he suffers and he grows in his love and his obedience for the Lord. And, and the Bible says, in being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So let's jump into these three temptations. The first temptation is to turn these stones to bread. Jesus is hungry. He's been 40 days in the wilderness. He's ravished. And in this first temptation, Satan is using similar words that the Father had just affirmed him with. The Father had just affirmed, this is my beloved Son. And now the devil comes along in these first two temptations. You notice they begin with if. If you're the Son of God, he, he tempts him with an identity crisis. You don't need to wait on God to feed you. Feed yourself. You're the Son of God. Turn these loaves into bread. The devil is casting doubt subtly on the goodness of God. Matthew Henry puts it like this, the devil carries on his designs very much by possessing people with hard thoughts of God, as if he were unkind or unfaithful, or had forsaken or forgotten those who had ventured their all with him. 
He endeavored to, be, to do this with our first parents, a notion that God forbade them the tree of knowledge because he grudged them the benefit of it. And so here he insinuates to our Savior that his father had cast him off and left him to shift for himself. Satan always wants us to think that God is holding out on you. He doesn't love you. If he did, he'd take better care of you and he wouldn't let you struggle or suffer. God doesn't care about your happiness. When you start hearing that kind of voice in your head, what should you say to yourself? That isn't from God. And it's probably not even from you. Certainly this is a big part of the temptation, but there's something even deeper still here. And Mike Nola, who many of you know, knows his Greek really well, and he sent me a couple emails this week, went back and forth, and his insights into the text, and I'm going to spare you of his nuances of the Greek, which I don't even understand. I don't think, you know, if there's a fog in the pulpit, there'll be a mist in the pew, so I'm not going to do that, but I'll give you the thrust of where he's going. He says that what Satan is telling Jesus to speak to these stones, he's actually telling, speak to the stones in direct address. Say, stones, let there be bread. You see, Mike goes on to say that what Satan is urging Jesus, who was the agent of creation in Genesis, is to do what Jesus did at creation, which was to speak divine fiat, speak something into existence. The difference now is that he wants Jesus to be his agent of creation, not God's. So the temptation goes well beyond food. In a sense, it would make Jesus Satan's son or agent, not God's son. So do it again, just like you did in creation. Just speak those loaves into existence, but this time you'd be obeying Satan and not the Father. Terrible temptation. And Jesus' response is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If Jesus gives into this temptation, he would have been living by bread, and the word coming from the mouth of Satan would have been what he would be trusting in. And Jesus doesn't fall for it. And so Jesus has to wrestle with his identity. This is an interesting theme throughout the book of Matthew. There are key moments of the battle laid out in Matthew. And a couple of these. One is, if you remember when, Jesus, or when Peter makes his confession. You know, they say, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you know, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's affirmed that <clears throat> upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And then we're instantly told that from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this should never happen to you. You're the son of God. That's what Peter had just confessed. And he turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And how quickly Peter went from being the rock to the stumbling stone. You see, Satan always promises a shortcut to glory that evades suffering altogether. Don't fall for it. Later in Jesus' journey, 
In Matthew chapter 26, once again, once the confession comes out that you're the son of God, expect temptation to come because it's a running theme in Matthew. So here we have it. The high priest stood up and he said, have you no answer to make to these false witnesses? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus has got to make a decision because he knows if he goes public with this confession, it's going to be suffering city. And Jesus said, you have said so. And from now on, I tell you, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's utter blasphemy. What further witnesses do you need? You've heard the blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him. And they slapped him saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is it that struck you? And then he goes to the cross. And we have the conclusion of this, if you're the son of God theme. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And so all the, high, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires, for he said, I'm the son of God. You see, it's all an identity crisis. He has to know who he is and be content in that. That even though these others would mock him and try to use that of who he is to do something bad, He will only use his power for good. You see, this was the great temptation. Jesus dies at the hands of sinful men. He could have easily saved himself, but if he does, he doesn't save us. He stayed put so that your salvation would stay put. He stayed on the cross because he loved you and me. And he loved his father, most of all. And some people argue, well, could Jesus have really been tempted? Were these temptations real? Does that not sound real to you? Well, it kind of begs the the famous quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. I think we got a slide of that. Two different, the same quote, two different slides. Where C.S. Lewis says, No man knows how bad he is till he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that people do not know what temptation means. That good people don't know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in, and you find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means. The only complete realist. And so that verse that we said in unison, that because he suffered when he was, when he was tempted, he suffered much more than any of us have. He's able to help us who are being tempted. The second temptation is the enemy takes him to this pinnacle of the temple, which is some three to 450 feet, depending on how you measure the elevation, but very high up. 
And he's saying, he'll command his angels concerning you, quoting Psalm 91, and on their hands they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. So we see Satan really knows scripture pretty good and even knows how to twist it. And once again, Jesus refutes him with, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, it's interesting. Psalm 91 actually says this in context. So look at, your, look at that second uh, temptation, which is verse uh, 6. And this is what the text actually says. Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague shall come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways." conveniently forgotten there by Satan. On their hands they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You see, we have to know the scriptures because the devil knows a lot of Bible and he's the great twister and he twists scripture to get you on his side and his agenda rather than God's. Luther in commenting about his enemies, Martin Luther, German monk again, He said, they write these stupid theological treatises with these inane and inept theological arguments. I have to waste my time refuting them, in effect. But the devil, he continues, the devil is able to confront me with real theological arguments. The devil is better at theology than my opponents. Now, I'm sure he meant that tongue-in-cheek at his opponents, but he was really serious. I mean, there's there's a stain at the Wartburg Castle where he threw the ink bottle where he was in such a spiritual battle with the devil himself. The temptation is a temptation here to Jesus that, look, God will save you, so make a, make a splash. People love splash and flash. People love signs. Do the dramatic. Show off your glory. Jump off the temple and come down in front of every, everybody will see this, and they'll make it clear to all that you're the son of God. It's like having a really, really fast car. Now, I remember when I was in high school and I had, was driving my dad's Corvette, and One of my buddies said, man, I want to see if you can burn rubber all the way up that hill. And I remember like really tempted, like, well, that'd be great. But no, I'll ruin the tires. I'll get in trouble, you know. You know, it's like because you have this powerful car, let's see the massive burnout. Well, that's what the enemy's like saying to to Jesus. "If If you're God, you're the son of God, then show off a little bit. Let's see God at work. But Jesus doesn't use his miracles for his own privilege. He performs miracles for the good of others so that they might believe who he is to be helped and to be saved ultimately from their sin. And he had to become sin on the cross so that by his stripes we would be healed. And so we have to be careful of presumption. This is a temptation of presumption is doing something so you're no longer living by faith. You want to live by sight. You've got to know, does he really love you? You've got to jump off and see if he'll really save you. Charles Spurgeon had this insightful comment. He's a preacher from London, late 1800s. He said, I know some people who earn their living and employments which are very hazardous to their immortal souls. They're in the midst of evil, yet they tell me that God can keep them in safely there. I know that he can, But I also know that we have no right to go voluntarily when we are surrounded by temptation. If your calling is the wrong one and you're continually tempted in it, you may not presume upon the goodness of God to keep you for it's your business to get as far away as you can from that which will lead you into sin. 
God does not put his servants on the pinnacle of the temple. It's the devil who puts you there. And if if you're ever there, the best thing you can do is to get down and quickly as safely as you can. But they must not cast themselves down. They must not look on him who alone can bring them down safely. With some professors, presumption is a very common sin. They go into worldly amusements and all sort of frivolities and say, oh, we can be Christians and yet go there. Can you? It may be that you can go there as, Chris, as hypocrites and go there. That's far easier than going there as Christians. You see, Jesus' reply is simply, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Beware in this, too, of asking God for signs. There's no regular pattern of Scripture of asking God for a sign. Matter of fact, Jesus said an evil and adulterous generation, what? Wants a sign. And so if you want to say, well, Lord, I need a sign between now and when I get to work that, you know, I should stay or go, you know? Well, what are you doing? You're putting the Lord out of the test. You're asking him to do something that you have manufactured. You're asking him to be your servant. And you could be very easily putting God to the test. Watch out and beware of doing that. Jesus wouldn't do that, and he didn't jump. The third temptation is to fall down and worship me. Shortcut to having it all. No cross needed. This was a real temptation. You see, for his part, keep in mind, this is like a cosmic battle. This is round one of this big fight. And what Satan is offering to do is he's saying, I will trade away my dominion to this world. I'll tap out. I'll tap out if you just bow down once and just worship me. I'll tap out. What do you think, Jesus? You see, Satan is willing to tap out and to surrender without a fight by twisting this around and saying the fight was over. If you just worship me once, I'll quit. It's yours. You can have it. And what Satan is tempting Jesus was that Psalm 2, all these things are promised to Jesus. The very things that Satan has tempted him. You remember that he's installed his king on the holy hill and all the nations are his inheritance. But the way that he inherits them is going to be, he's going to have to suffer and be crucified and be buried. That's how this is going to come about. And then he'll be resurrected and sent up into heaven. And so Satan is offering a speeded up way of accomplishing his mission. He could win over the crowds by creating food on demand and then take control of the kingdoms of the world and all the while protecting himself from danger. Why are you moving so slowly, Jesus, when when here victory is just assured you right here? Just bow down once and he'll tap out. Well, Jesus, if he does that, then is he trusting his father? No. No. What Jesus is saying throughout these temptations is he's going to trust his Father. He will not presume upon his word. He will trust God and he will find strength from God and from God's word. And he will not circumvent God's will. And so he believes in the goodness of his Father and he waits upon his Father to deliver him in the Father's own time and the Father's own way. And so what Jesus is doing here. And throughout Matthew, as we see this, is he's redoing everywhere where Israel failed. 
And so we talked about this before, is how we have this picture of, of Jesus going down into Egypt, just as, as, as the Israelites went down into Egypt. And, and Matthew chapter 2 has this idea of Herod pursuing, just as Pharaoh was pursuing and killing the babies. And now Herod does the same thing, and it's showing you Jesus is the new Israel. He's the Israel. And then as Jesus goes into the wilderness, and so much of this looks like John the Baptist, and, and he's uh, John the Baptist is looking a lot like uh, Elijah, and Elijah's in the wilderness, and he too is fed by angels, and Jesus is going to be the greater Elijah, and he's going to be fed by angels here, and, and we see Jesus is, is going back door through the Jordan River in his baptism, just as Israel had crossed through the Jordan River, and now just as Israel went <coughs> into, the, <coughs> excuse me, into the wilderness, and they failed continually, Jesus is going to obey and obey and obey. And what he's winning for us by his obedience is that very perfection is what is given to us. Now, where we get this from is Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 in particular, but several places in the Bible where we're told this, that if because of one man's trespass, that'd be Adam, that death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, one sin led to condemnation for all men through Adam's sin. So one act of righteousness, Jesus's, this leads to justification in life for all men. So as the one man's disobedience, the many are made sinners. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And this is where we make a distinction in theology between the active and passive obedience of Jesus. You need both to be saved. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for your sins. He did that. Great. He's taken away your sins. But who kept the law of God for you? Jesus has to do both. And the active obedience of Jesus refers to his submission and his conformity to God's law. He's born under the law. He redeems those under the law. His passive obedience refers to him submitting himself to death, even death on a cross, and his active obedience qualified him to be the perfect and spotless lamb. His passive obedience is the paschal lamb being crucified. And so his passive obedience pays for all of our sins, past, present, and future, but his active obedience is what is credited to your account so that you aren't just forgiven, you're now righteous. You aren't just debt level at zero, you're trillion dollars in the positive account of righteousness because you have Jesus' very righteousness imputed to you. You're standing right now, if you're trusting in Christ in both his passive and active obedience, you're much better than Adam ever was in the garden because all Adam ever had in the garden was his own perfection, which fell real quick. If you're trusting in Christ, you have his death to pay for your sins and you have his life his one act of obedience, his whole life imputed to you, and you are rich in Christ. Now, Machen was a famous theologian that was from, uh, he started Princeton Seminary, and his final telegram of his life, he sent a telegram to his friend and colleague, Professor John Murray, great, another great theologian, and this is what the telegram said. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ no hope without it. And then he died. 
Well, this is what Machen said that makes this so important. He says, do you not see what the true state of the case is? Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience are not two divisions of his work, some of the events of his earthly life being his active obedience and others being his passive obedience, but every event of his life was both active and passive obedience. Every event of his life was part of his penalty of the payment of sin, and every event of his life was part of that glorious keeping of the law of God by which he earned for his people the reward of eternal life. The two aspects of his work, in other words, are inextricably intertwined. They're like ropes that are knotted together. Nothing was performed apart from the other. And so this is very important because we look at the cross and we say, oh yeah, he died for me. When you look at the temptation, do you say, he won obedience for me? That's my righteousness. I failed in the garden. And now someone's much hungrier than Adam and Eve were and has every possible fruit that they can eat from except one and they failed. Jesus has nothing and he trusts God and wins righteousness for us. That's what's happening here. Let me conclude by telling you a story of this idea of representation. Because what's happening here is real temptation, real representation, and therefore you get real righteousness and a real salvation. But this week I got enthralled in a book that Kevin Jameson loaned to me. It's entitled The Rescue of the Bounty. And the bounty is a, was this massive wooden ship. And the ship was made in 1960 for the film, The Mutiny on the Bounty. And it was a reconstruction from the original ship from the 1700s, but made much bigger. And the mast, there are some 150 feet that go up into the air. Most of you would know this ship from this movie called The Pirates of the Caribbean. Anybody seen any of that? Same ship, okay? Well, these wooden ships, I've come to discover, they are a nightmare to maintain. They cost unbelievable gobs of money. The caulk is constantly failing. The water is constantly getting into these things. You constantly have to redo the mast and repair the wood that's rotting. They're just, the thing was very hard to maintain. And as a result, the captain of the ship was kind of in a desperate shape to get his ship from New London, Connecticut down to St. Petersburg, Florida, because there in St. Peter's, Florida, he was going to start a fundraising campaign with Down Syndrome and bring Down Syndrome children onto the, the ship, and they were going to raise money together. And he's always in need of raising money because this ship is constantly a sieve, okay? It is just... And so the problem was, you got Connecticut here and Petersburg here, but in between is Frankenstorm. It's Hurricane Sandy, which later became Frankenstorm, that spanned out some 800 miles in the Atlantic, whereas most hurricanes are like 60 miles wide. This thing was just unbelievable. Well, he, as, rep as the leader and representative of the ship, he had 15 crewmates. And they trusted him implicitly because he was a good captain. And he had sailed through some of these hurricanes before, even what he called arrogantly chasing down a hurricane, that he could get on the back side of it on the southeast side and catch the winds as it's coming around and get a great ride in these hurricanes. And he had miraculously survived a few of these. And so they loved this guy and they trusted him. And they, but he told them, we're going to do this. We're going to set sail. And he said, if any of you want to leave, you can leave. 
But and they all said, they looked at each other, they love each other, they're all in it, you know, one for all, Mickey Mouse kind of stuff, you know. And so they followed their leader. And then you see on the news, how in the world does this hideous ship that only does five knots, you know, miles an hour, five knots an hour, what in the world is this thing doing in the middle of Frankenstorm, you know? Well, they get, so sure enough, they set, they set sail, sail into this storm and you just get enthralled into this book as things begin to fail. This thing, the pumps aren't working and they can't keep up with the water that's coming in. The, the sails and the mast are starting to rip as the winds are beginning to blow them to shreds and they have to climb up the, this mast in the middle of a hurricane and start saving the rigging and that the pumps are continuing to get clogged and failing, and then eventually they start losing power, and the engines start going out, and it starts going black on the ship, and, and then the, the waves are pounding them, and a couple of people get hurt, including the captain himself, who gets hit by a, a, a wave so bad that it threw him into a, a table and hurt his back. And so they're, they're desperate. And they finally, after all this, the first mate decides to contact the Coast Guard. Good idea. So they call the Coast Guard, and now they're, they're about 90 miles from, from Cape Hatteras, and they call for help. And so the Coast Guard sends out a C-130 plane, which was quite exciting adventure of the C-130, and they had their own issues flying in this hurricane, and one part where the wings actually moved and flexed over five feet as they went a couple hundred feet down and a couple hundred feet up from a massive gust of wind. But this story gets exciting because they flew figure eights once they discovered him, and they kept, that was the only way they could keep communications because the communications were failing on this boat. But they had its location and they're running figure eights over this in the dark and that this, these people on the ship were hoping to make it till morning and they didn't. A big wave came and the rigging went into the water and so did most of the crew. And all 16 of them went into the water. And so the last words from the first mate was, send help immediately, and into the water they go. Into a hurricane, water, 30-foot swells at least, some as much as 40, 50-foot swells, and these guys are in it. They, are, they have been represented by their captain, and their captain has made a terrible decision and has plunged their ship, and now they are in need of rescue because they're in utter disaster. Well, the Coast Guard sends a helicopter, which takes an hour to get there, and this incredible swimmer, this guy named Dan, and he drops, they had two different swimmers, but the one guy drops down into the water from this, you know, like the zip line thing, drops down into the water, and this life raft which has a zipper over top of you and you can't really see if there's anybody in it, and finally they open the zipper and he jumps in and he says, Hey, I'm Dan. I heard you guys need a ride. <laughs> because nobody said anything. He said they were scared to death, and so that was his line to them. And he proceeded. He was in the water for 45 minutes, this guy, in these hurricane waters, and he saved all these guys, and he saved seven. He gets up there. He's exhausted. They tell him, you've got to get three more in another raft. He didn't have anything left, but he made it. And he got... They rescued 14 of the 16 people. Two didn't make it. Well, how does that tie to you? 
That's us, guys. Our captain made a bad decision. That would be Captain Adam and first mate Eve. And they plunged our ship, and we're in this perilous predicament called a storm. It's called a storm of God's wrath, that God is angered by our sins. And we're in big trouble, and there's no way we are going to get back to, to, to safety unless something comes down from heaven and down to give us a lift to get out of there. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do by representing us, living out perfectly the law, and then dying on the cross for everywhere we failed. And he gives us this great exchange. It's, I'll take your sins, and I'll give you my righteousness. I'll give you all of my perfection, my perfect garment of righteousness, this robe of righteousness, and I'll take your filthy, stained life, and I'll die for you on the cross. And there was only one requirement for these people to be saved. You know what they had to do? They had to do one thing. They had to get in the basket. And when they got in the basket, they couldn't leave anything exposed. No arms over or legs over, because those will easily be broken when you're coming back up into hurricane winds into a helicopter. You could break an arm or leg. So you got to have everything intact. Just get in the basket. That's all you need to do this morning is get into Jesus. Jesus, save me. And you cry out for help and you get in his basket, which is his loving arms that saved us on a cross. Put your trust in him. He will save you. And when he saves you, there is absolutely no possibility that you'll ever escape from him. He says he loses none. None can perish out of his hands. These arms are so much stronger than any Coast Guard swimmer. These are the everlasting arms that save you for eternity. Isn't that good news? Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this victory. Your whole life, we thank you that you crushed the serpent's head. We thank you for, we look for the full victory when you return. We thank you now that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And we thank you that we are safe in your arms. We trust you. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.